You're listening to Detroit Today. I'm Laura Weber Davis. Thanks so much for joining us today. The Midwest Literary Walk is in Chelsea, Michigan this weekend. It's a day featuring readings and discussion with a group of authors and poets, many of whom that we've had on this program. Era D. Matthews is one of the featured poets this year. She's a writer from Detroit whose own reading of her work will move something innate and human within you. Her book of poetry, Simulacra, takes the reader on an intimate journey of internal desire, desire of the tangible and intangible. I recently spoke with Era D. about the themes of her prose, including DNA, which appears as a zoomed-in strand on the cover of Simulacra. So one of my overarching concerns with the text was trying to uh, figure out what I called my guiding question, was really trying to figure out the extent of heritability. How much do we inherit from our forebears? Hmm. And um, through the lens and the scope of want and desire. And so how heritable is that trait? Is that something that's just, is it just nature or is it nurture? Is it What is it about want and desire that seems like it's embedded in us? Um, as humans. And I'm wondering um, in the text if it's possible that it was just handed down to us. And so I'm using these kind of textual examples of want being a um, kind of one of the legacies of lineage. Well, are you talking exclusively about a sexual want or desire? Are you talking about want and desire in life in general? Because there are romantic overtones to your poetry. There are sexual mm-hmm. moments to your poetry. But there's also about a, uh, a want or a desire, it seems to me, about something greater for oneself in life. Sure, yeah. I think it's a broad want. I think it's kind of that inescapable, ever-present want. Um, and it's not necessarily easily uh, pinpointed, right? So you could be at any point in your life where you feel like you've got some form of emptiness, right? Something There's something that you want filled. There's some, there's some overarching want that you haven't yet designated or identified. Um, and so it's trying to move through these different life stages and look at want through the different life stages. Right. Um, because it it rarely goes away. It's kind of one of those, it's a companion on our life's walk, you know, and it's, it's not a bad thing to want. But I think that, um, I think the message that we get a lot of times from society is that you can want as long as it's kind of in the context of the American dream. Hmm. So you can want the That's picket so fence, yeah. you can want the house, But what about all of the other iterations of want? And there's so many, you know, I mean, there's there's um, kind of the passionate want, the desiring of another. There's uh, want for knowledge. Um, There's um, want for companionship. And so how do we work through those? And it's it's a very great question. Um, Well, it's interesting that you say that, because one of the things that stood out to me um, is that I was unclear as a reader, and I think it was intentional, uh, I was unclear as a reader whether I was at times reading about a romantic love between two women, Mm -hmm. between a man and a woman, between Mm -hmm. two men, and there is never this very specific gendered connection. And I think that speaks to what you're saying. I'm I'm thinking you intended not to develop a male-female romantic through line through this whole book. but it seems to me that that speaks to whether or not you are wanting something that is accepted 
or right. wanting something that is what you want. Right. And how that transcends gender to some degree. I mean, so um, the idea of want is universal. And so it's not just the want of a woman for necessarily another woman or a woman for a man or a man for a man or however, however many iterations we can come up with how want might look. Um, and so what I tried to do in the text, and it was very intentional, so thank you for noticing that, <laughs> what I tried to do in the text is kind of embody these different experiences that were not necessarily my own, but were experiences that deserved the confession, that deserved someone coming forth and saying, hey, uh, this is a situation for some people. This is a situation for all of us, right? Mm -hmm. And so however we experience want, it is universal. It, it comes with the territory of humanity. And so how does one show that? Hmm. How does one present that? Um, and a lot of times it's really ambiguous. I mean, I think that's the nature of desire is that, you know, there's this thing that you want, but you're not actually sure what it is. Right. And so how do you represent that in the text? Hmm. And the best way to, in my opinion, to represent ambiguity is through ambiguity. And um, kind of creating, presenting the veil that folks have to, or presenting a puzzle that folks have to piece together for themselves. You're listening to Detroit Today. I'm Laura Weber Davis. I'm speaking with Era D. Matthews. She's a poet who will be part of the Midwest Literary Walk this weekend. Um, Era, if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to hear you read one of your poems. Sure. So I'll give you some context for this poem. Uh, when I first uh, really got deeply embedded in poetic tradition, because some of this book is also about, when we talk about lineage, mm -hmm. it's also about your poetic lineage. Um, and who influences you in what ways? Sure. And so when I first started reading poetry seriously, I was reading Tender Buttons by Gertrude Stein. Mm. And uh, my f very first impression of it was that, oh my gosh, I can't stand this work. I really can't stand it. <laughs> it's incomprehensible. I don't know what she's trying to do. And so I had to let it sit for a while. And I mean, it was kind of this seething anger with the way that she presented her work. I was like, this is so uh, uh, presumptuous. This is, this is so high-minded. And it, it, and it did a whole lot of different things in terms of repetition and syntax. And it bothered me. And so <laughs> I had to look deeper and figure out why it bothered me. And it bothered me because I was writing in her tradition. I was mm -hmm. doing the same thing she was doing. Um, and I didn't recognize it. But I also know that in hearing language as a child, my grandmother used to talk like that. My grandmother was from deep south Alabama, Pike County, Alabama. And she spoke in fragments and excerpts um, and a different type of punctuated syntax that um, I didn't completely understand then, but I began to translate and interpret. So this poem is called If My Late Grandmother Were Gertrude Stein. One Southern Migration. Leech, broke speech, leaf ain't prunin' pot. Lay, lie, lie, hair straight off. Arrowed branch and horse joint, elbow ash. Row fish, row dog, slow milk pig, blue water sister, hogs like willow. Weep, crow, weep, cow, so bug, so narrow, inch way, inches away, over the bridge, back that way, fur. Fur needles and coal. Black hole, black out, black feet, blame. Long way still, not there, there, here, same. Three, miscegenation. 
Good, smooth, curly-haired baby, baby rock by my baby, mama rock by her baby. Wrestle the earth, baby, no dirt, no. Dirt shine, 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 neck, porcelain, tin, tarnish, powder, milk, pout, her, milk, powder, silk, inheritance. Front the washtub, top the bed, bin, leaky numbers, run in, run in, run on. Red fever holds your palms, sweat it out. Hot, hot, heat the rest, pretty melt that wax-wide flower. Ellis Island, daddy, oh, daddy's bar. Band, mongrel hum, come, come now. Little bones bend, old crack, creak, crank, crick, curly cue, bump them, then bump them. You hear me? Walk through, good-haired baby. Half of you belong. That's so beautiful. I'm really happy you chose to read that one as well because I said to my husband last night, I think I would have her read this poem, but... I'm not sure what the way that I could read it, if I'd be able to read it on air in a way that that it really um, conveys the beauty of the prose as the way they look on the page. Right. But you did a fabulous job Thank with that. You. It's obviously your work. So, <laughs> um, you know, uh, I'm in radio now, but uh, began my sort of adult life thinking that I was going to end up doing what you're doing. And I care deeply and still do care deeply about the way things look on the page sure. and the way that things sound both in your head as you're reading them, the way they look to your eye, the way words flow together. It's, it's, that is not lost on me with your work. How much do you think about the way that things are sounding to your eye, if that makes any sense? Absolutely. Um, you know, I think poetry is such a sensory art form. All art forms really are. Um, but I think folks put a lot of uh, effort into trying to read the poem uh, and not necessarily, unless the poem's spoken, but not necessarily hearing the poem or being able to see how it might sound. So when you approach a book of poetry, everyone approaches poetry differently, but when one approaches poetry, I might consider how um, how words look juxtaposed against one another. Sure. What kind of feeling that evokes. And so there was a, a 1970-something interview with Gwendolyn Brooks, and she was telling the interviewer that um, We Real Cool was supposed to be read a certain way. Hmm. And the emphasis at each, of, at each of the end lines was on the we. And the we was to be read softly as if to convey uncertainty hmm. because the young men in that poem didn't know what their fates would be. They kind of knew, but they didn't actually surely know. And so there's something interesting in how lines are broken and the feeling that one gets as they move through a poem. And all of that is very intentional. In fact, that's the art of poetry, is trying to understand how to convey using, um, kind of employing the economy of words, but maximizing feeling. Right. So how do you use as few words as possible to maximize a feeling? And so one might think about how to manipulate the page as a visual art form. Because what does visual art give us? Visual art gives us a picture that we then interpret. Absent any text usually, but it's an interpretation of a visual. And so poetry has that same ability to make folks think differently. So to not only engage your oral sense, but also engage your visual sense. And so that's what the collection is really trying to do is 
to um, engage both equally. And I think about that quite a bit. I mean, that's why I employ white space. That's why there are spaces there. And Right. And each poem that looks very unique mm-hmm. and unto itself. I'm just curious if you ever worry that the reader may not internalize it the way that you are intended for it to be internalized, like with those wheeze being soft. Yeah. Um, so are you ever worried about that or you just let the art speak to the reader as it will? I do think about it, but I, ultimately what I have to do is I have to let it go. Yeah. And so, um, and say, everyone will come to this book, sep- you know, with their own separate experiences and their own um, distinct way of walking in the world. And so, in order to write to that, I kind of write through it, hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, and sure. so I just have to believe that we meet somewhere on that road, if that <laughs> makes sense. And um, if a reader steps away from the collection with a sense of uncertainty, that's also intentional. Hmm. Because one of my uh, guiding premises was that we just can't know anything. Right. You know, and so which is why the philosophers come into play. Um, and how philosophers are so comfortable with a degree of uncertainty that makes most of us very uncomfortable. Right. Um, but they posit, they don't know for sure, and they are very um, expressive about that and very certain about not knowing. And I like that. Like, I want folks to come away. So the sense of frustration I had with Gertrude Stein, that was intentional. You know, she wrote intentionally so that people would feel uncomfortable and frustrated by her, her reading by her work. And I kind of want that. I want folks to leave the work with us with a degree of uncertainty. Um, because ultimately, <laughs> what can we actually be sure of? Well, I'm, I'm glad that you also read the passage you did. Um, in the and one of the parts that you chose of that passage, the miscegenation mm-hmm. portion, it also gets back to the same thing with the gendered aspect mm-hmm. uh, of your writing. There are deeply rooted elements of uh, of race in your work, but you never really tackle it in a direct way, but more in an indirect way. Right. And I, I wanted to know why you chose to do it that way and how much of how much of your poetry is fueled by being a woman and how much of it is fueled by being black? That's a great question. Um, one of the reasons I did not, I don't really attack anything head on in my writing. I try and um, either go around or through Mm -hmm. uh, whatever is the best tactic to avoid these closed, a closed conversation or a closed um, representation of experience, if that makes sense. I want the experience to be open, which is why inside the text I've got these conversations with Anne Sexton, who is another writer that um, I've adored my entire career, um, I wanted to have a conversation with her. And some of those conversations are about race. And some of those conversations are about class. But most of those conversations are just about living. And so when I get to the root of uh, race or to the root of class, one of the things that I come away with is that people are just really trying to live. And to the degree that you honor that, you honor the humanity above all else, You can still write to an experience, but you're not closed in by that experience. You're not hemmed in on all sides by that experience. And so um, when I come to the page, I don't I don't necessarily think about. I'm a black woman and I have to write this way. I open myself up to what the words want to do. 
Um, and I know that I'm a black woman because I live in this body every day and I have the experiences that are inherent with living in this body every day. And so the, the mere act of uh, some days getting up and <laughs> having to deal with people is, you know, a political act um, is very much um, a racial rebellion. And so I recognize that. And I, I think that there's some beauty in um, not being explicitly one thing or the other. It opens you yourself. It opens you to being many things, which I think is what we actually are. We're very complex, and so you know that's that's really how I think about it. I mean, I know that I'm a woman. I know that I'm black. I'm proud of both of those things, but I don't have to beat anybody over the head with it. I know who I am. Era D. Matthews is a poet who will be featured this weekend at the Midwest Literary Walk. Era D., I would love if we could go out on one more of your poems as well. Sure. So we were talking about heritability a little bit earlier and want and, um, and language. And so when I was growing up in New Jersey, my father was a heroin addict uh, for many years, um, and it eventually killed him. Uh, and I remember as a child hearing the word heron or heron was more like it, heron. And I was like, oh, isn't that a bird? This poem's called Heron. I thought it was a bird. Skimmed rush. Hush as before a fowl fixes its head up from shadow water, sickened by its own nature. Narcissus reversed. Unfortunate predatory consequence. The luck. Heron spots two ducklings nesting on an outcrop of rocks. Swift-like, Heron bounces off the lake, a hollowed pebble. In one swallow, babes go down, pulsing inside Heron's throat until they succumb. Mama Mallard squawks and plods. Helpless, she flies low away. How long do mother ducks mourn? Until the next day, next month, until pitch pines shake barren or a naked beggar shakes on his kitchen floor like brush in a rain stick, begging two bird bags. Four quarters, one gram. His daughters, empty cupboards, offer open tin at his feet. Eat, eat, until Heron comes. When sick, foul fit in veins like ducks in necks. Vortex of sorts. Some knew this. Yet none bothered to explain how Heron made him fly. Why Heron made him, well, Let's start. That was Era D. Matthews. She's a poet who will be featured at the Midwest Literary Walk in Chelsea, Michigan this weekend. That's going to do it this Friday. I'm Laura Weber Davis. Stephen Henderson will be back on Monday.